Well, this morning, um, we uh, get to hear from uh, Jared Weaver, uh, who is a near and dear friend of mine. And uh, Jared um, was uh, on staff for several years at, at Calvary Community before we had merged together and has served in a couple different capacities um, in ministry. And I just appreciate Jared's uh, honesty, um, his sincerity, and just his, uh, his sincere pursuit of Christ has been a very consistent thing to watch and to benefit from. And so uh, he's going to be preaching out of Lamentations this morning. And Jared, thanks for taking uh, time out of your life to come be with us and uh, open up God's word. Uh, so come and, and, and preach. Many of you are familiar faces, and that's wonderful to see. Um, many new faces, too, and that's super exciting. And what I loved the most this morning was I love a congregation who sings. Um, and this morning, you guys were singing, and it was, uh, it was special to my heart. So thank you for, for loving God and, and singing. Um, it's, been, it's been good. I always say um, I came to love the church in Sonoma County. Um, it's kind of one of the, the, the truths. And so... It's hard to believe that six years ago, uh, my family and I, we headed out uh, from here. Uh, Onity, Karis, and Xander was uh, in womb at that time. And we went on a, a journey to the great Northwest. Um, and the aim was to combine two great loves. Um, I love the Pacific Northwest and all that is that. And uh, see some faces out, that's good. And, uh, and I also love the church. And so we went up to shepherd a fledgling church in hopes of restoration and revitalization, um, trying to bring um, just the gospel and discipleship to uh, a church that had gone through some really difficult circumstances and times and hadn't had a pastor for a year. And so uh, we were feeling sent and loved um, by the community that we had here in Sonoma County at the time, and we were off. Uh, I would say our excitement was high. Uh, the scare factor was off the charts, but we were also confident that God was leading our family. This is where he's taking us. This is what he wants us to do. And so God was in our sails, and we can't lose. Um, and so while there were some high points in our time in Wenatchee, Washington, like experiencing the birth of Xander and getting our Zanman, our little guy, and of course watching the Seahawks win the Super Bowl and put the 49ers in another rebuild season. So <laughs> there was that. Um, but in 2016, uh, I know God was gracious to remove me before the whole thing went down. Uh, but after bringing uh, restoration to this hurting church and, and its former pastor, we decided that the most kingdom move for us a, as a church and as a body forward um, was to close the church. Um, and so after three years of, of um, faithfully serving and, and trying to minister to the people and to the needs and, and just really caring for people, um, we closed the church. And, and closing a church that you moved a thousand miles away for uh, is excruciatingly hard. Uh, it, it's hard to say, uh, because that's your family, right? You, you invest yourself into a community, you invest yourself into a family. It's also your job, happens to be, for me in that case. Um, it's your career, it's kind of everything that you've, you've kind of geared yourself for. Uh, and so it kind of leaves you queuing up the questions in your heart, in your mind. Going, God, where are you? God, what's happening? God, I don't get this. God, I don't understand where are you in all of this? And so, 
Anadi and I spent the next six months fighting for what I would say the faith to believe, fighting for the faith to believe that God isn't absent in our disappointment, but he's fully present. It's good to say, hard to believe sometimes, right? And so we took another leap of faith. Um, uh, in 2017, uh, after six months of, of trying to look at our hearts and trying to wonder what God was up to, uh, 2017, we decided that we would move back to California. Because who moves back to California? Everybody's getting out of here, right? Um, only fools or if God's calling you to something. And so uh, we decided that we were going to move back to California. Uh, we felt God leading us to a new season of ministry in, in the Sacramento area and uh, in a growing church where I could join a team in ministry. And uh, we, we thought that, that that was where things were headed. So about two and a half, three years ago, we, we made that venture here into California's world. Uh, but unfortunately, after a couple of years, it was painfully clear that it wasn't going to be a long-term fit. And so two months ago, I resigned from my position into what I would say nothingness at the moment. Um, and so, so I stand here this morning. Tim asked me to preach uh, probably a month, three months ago, before kind of all this, this, and I was like, you know, I can only really preach one thing, and just, God, what are you up to, kind of sermon, um, because I don't know. Um, I stand here asking, what do you do with the pain of dreams that are dashed and hopes that are destroyed? What do you do with those? Like, what do you do with God in those moments, in those spaces where you hope in something, and you think it's of God, and you think God's leading, and you, and you you envision this is where God is calling you and leading you to do, yet it comes to an end. Where is God? What do we do with God in that space? How do you approach God when you feel like you've walked with him, you've desired him, and you've tried to trust him, and it leaves you feeling, what you'd say, you know, exiled from your two loves? I'm in California, Pacific Northwest is up there, and the church, I don't, I don't know where I fit at the moment. And so that's where I'm at. I'm a pastor, but more foundationally, I'm a disciple fighting to see God in this moment and in this space. But I don't think I'm alone in this feeling. I don't, I don't think I'm the only one to have ever experienced this. So question for you guys this morning is, where are you this morning? Are you wondering, God, where are you? God, why did this happen? God, what, what is going on in my life? God, I, I envisioned something different, but here I am. What are you doing, God? Like, I can't fathom the difficulty and the pain of two firestorms within two years in this, in this community. Like, that, that's incredible. Like, God, what in the world? What are you doing, God? I don't know the hurt that maybe each one of you have endured or incurred personally in your own hearts, in your own lives, because of your own dashed dreams, maybe failing health, or relational pain that's, that's going on in your hearts, in your lives. I don't know any of those things. And so maybe this morning you're, you're retracing the steps, asking God, where, where are you in this? What are you doing? Where are you leading me? What are you up to? And so maybe you're like me this, this morning, approaching Thanksgiving, finding it difficult, a little difficult to be super thankful. Because you're like, God, are you there? What are you up to? So it leads us to the question for us this morning is this, is, is what are we to do? What are we to do with our pain? What are we to do with our disappointments? Where do we go with our sadness, our anger, and our fear? Is, 
Is, is there a place for us to wrestle with those things? Is there a place for us to take those experiences? Where do we go when hope is lost? What can we do? And the answer is simple yet hard, and that is we can lament. We can lament to God himself. The main point this morning is this, is that when your hope is lost and God himself feels like he's more your enemy than your father, we can bring our pain, our hurt, our hopelessness to the giver of hope. We can, when we're on the, on the verge of hopelessness, we can bring that to the giver of hope and plead and ask for him to be our hope in the midst of that, to become our hope when we don't know where else to turn. And so the source of your hope this morning can handle and hold your faithlessness and your hopelessness. The source of your hope, he can handle it. He can hold it in his hands. It's almost as if sometimes we, we take our pain and our frustrations and we say, God, are you, are you able, are you capable of holding on to this with me? Will you hold on to it for me? Will you take this? In lamenting, we take our failed hopes to God and hope that he would renew and restore them in himself. As Ben said, maybe, maybe, maybe you're in a season of going, things are going well, and Praise the Lord. Like, be thankful. Praise the Lord. That is God's goodness, God's graciousness being poured out into your heart, into your life, and, and thank him for that. But there's also a, you've probably just come out of a season, <laughs> the reality is, because we live on this side of Genesis 3, and pain and difficulty is a, a reality of our lives. And so thank him for that, and also understand maybe he's preparing you for something. I know not. I'm not the sovereign Lord. I don't know what he's up to in your life. But we can envision and think through that this morning. And so what is lamenting? First, a little small introduction to lamenting that allows us to then get into our passage uh, this morning. Lamenting is this. It's expressing your failed hopes to God. Lamenting is expressing your failed hopes to God. And lamenting isn't something that's obscure. It's found all over the Bible. We find it in Job. We find it in Jeremiah, we find it in Lamentations, we find it in Psalms. Uh, this morning I was even reading an article about Ruth. We find it in Naomi, right? She's, she's lamenting the difficulty of her life, like, like she's crying out to God, like, God, this isn't what I envisioned for my life. But lamenting is hard because who wants to sign up for a season of sitting in our own muck in our own mire, right? Like, I, I'm not really interested in that. I, I prefer not to do that. In fact, I want something that's going to pull me out. I want something that's going to get me out of this circumstance and this situation. So that's what I need to focus my attention on. And so we live in an age, though, a culture and an age, of what I call the age of hype, where transcendent experiences take us farther up the success ladder, and that means that our friends and our families and our acquaintances, they have little trouble joining us in the joy of hopes fulfilled. Like when things go well for us, people, they're in, they're excited, everyone's excited, they, they know exactly how to respond with you oftentimes. But the trouble comes when the age of hype fails to join us in the real life implications of a Genesis 3 world. You see, when life is maybe more down than up, more lemons than aid, or rain clouds and rainbows. See, here's the truth this morning is this, is that, friends, with every pain of this life, you have a choice. Every pain of this life, you and I, we have a choice with what we will do. That Will you express to God how you feel? Will you let your heavenly Father in on your experience of him, 
on your experience of what he's up to, on your experiencing of this life? Or will you hide away in shame, pretending to your others, yourself, and to God that it didn't hurt? I got it. God has a plan. It's easy. It's good. Or, or, or will we bring that, God, I don't understand what you're up to. I don't get it. I feel like you're against me. We can, God can handle that. And so in lament, rather than pushing down our pain, we instead seek to let God have it. Rather than pushing it down, stuffing it down, pretending that it doesn't exist, pretending that I'm okay, everything's perfect, everything's good, we say, God, will you take this from me? Will you hold this with me? Will you be in this space with me? A little, little sample for us is, is Job in his experience of God. He lets God have a glimpse of the crushing pain of everything. So he has, has this wonderful life, and he doesn't even know about the bidding that goes on between Satan and God and all that experience in the heavenly realms, and all this stuff is wiped away from him. And he expresses to God this sentiment. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth, and Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. He's expressing to God, like, God, I don't even want to live anymore. He, he laid it all on the line. He gave that to his God, and he continues to go on in the book of Job, and he later he says that he just desired that God would pay him attention, that God would pay me attention. He wants God, ultimately, what does he want? He wants God to respond to him in those space. He wants God to, to engage with him, to explain. He wants relationship with God because he's saying, God, why did you do this? Come near me. Come show yourself. Come speak to me. Come be present in my life. And what does Job ultimately and finally get in his experience of God? He gets God. He doesn't get the why, does he? God doesn't come and say, well, here's the plan. All this stuff was happening in heaven, and this is why it existed. He does not inform Job of that scenario. Instead, he just informs Job of who? Himself. He's like, here's who I am. And for Job, that was enough. That was enough. He got God himself. And so that's what lament will do for us. I pray, I plead, I'm praying and pleading in my own heart in my own life, that as I encounter and engage God with what he's doing in my heart and life, that I would get him. And he loves me too much to let me settle for anything less than himself and him alone. And so in Lamentations 3 is the passage we're going to find ourselves in. And so what do we need to know about Lamentations before we read and pray? We need to know that the author is not assured. We don't know exactly who it is. Many think that it's the prophet Jeremiah whose, whose life is known to be one big lament, and so it, it could very well and possibly be Jeremiah. But what we, we do know with certainty is that it was written after 586 B.C., which is after the exile, so after God had enacted his judgment on, on the people of Israel and sent them out into Babylonian captivity. And so they, they were on their way, or they were in Babylonian captivity, and Captivity means that hope and expectations were missed in some way, shape, or form, right? Like, it didn't go as they had planned or as they had thought. So there was much opportunity for them to experience difficulties and to process that and to work with God. And so the first two chapters were this expression of corporate lament to God over the pain of their failure to obey him. 
And so they, basically it's a, it's a description of, of Jerusalem and Judah and their unfaithfulness and the experience of God no longer being for his people but against his people, set against them in a disciplinary act against them, which leads us to chapter 3, which then begins this personal lament to God. This lamenter is lamenting of his personal experience of God. So let's read the word of the Lord in Lamentations 3, 1 through 24. I hear you guys like to stand, so let us stand for the reading of his word. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this truth. We thank you that you meet us in our pain. That you're a God who's good enough and loving enough and gracious enough and generous enough to reach down into the heart of our experience and you join us. And you hear us. And so we pray that you would hear us this morning. Hear our hearts. Spirit of God, would you minister to the hearts of your people here at Redemption Hill, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. So what what does lamenting look like in accordance to this lamenter's experience? Well, I want to ask two questions, or answer two questions, and that's this, is first, what does it look like, and then where will it lead us? Where might lamenting lead us? And so the first answer to this is, what does it look like? It's first, lamenting is directed at who? Who is it directed at? It's at God, right? Like all those he's, all those hymns, all of that, that's referring to one person, and his name is God. And so this lamenter is bringing his beef to who? God himself, He's like, I got this. I'm going to bring this before your steps, God. And 
Some, some commentators believe that the absence of a name or a title, it's just he, there's no, there's no title of the Lord, there's no uh, inclination of, of connectedness, uh, only further describes the abandonment that is felt by this lamenter, by this author that he writes. But he has a good, strong understanding and knowledge of this, is that who alone created everything? God. God is in control. God orchestrates and determines the details and the circumstances of his life. You see, I'm a good reformed guy, right? I believe in the sovereignty of God. And therefore, if I believe in the sovereignty of God, what does that necessitate? That necessitates that God can do something about this, right? He's not incapable. He's fully and wholly capable of dealing with the circumstances that I find myself in. And so what do I need to do? God, what is going on? Why is this happening? You can do something. I believe that. Yet, here's what it is. Here's the experience. And so he comes knowing and pleading his case before the, the only person who can really do anything about his circumstance. The only person who has the authority, the power, and the ability to transform and to change where he finds himself. And Lamentations isn't alone in this. When people address God in the scriptures, saying, God, where are you? What are you doing? I'm taking my beef to you. Psalm 6 says, my soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord, how long? Psalm 10, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Like, where are you in this circumstance? Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Psalm 119, my eyes fail, looking for your promise. I say, when will you comfort me? So friends, this morning, do you have a beef with God? Do you have something? Do you have a hope, a dream, an expectation swollen expectation, though it may be, that you're saying to God, God, why is this not happening? What is going on? Why is this the occurrence in my heart and in my life today? I want to invite you to take your pain to God. You can take that to your God. Your God wants to hear you. Your heavenly Father wants to stoop down, and he wants to hear how you feel and your experience of him. Just the other day, I was riding with my daughter, Karis. She's now eight. We were in the car, and she was trying to explain to me this experience that she was having at school with her friends and just all the, the dynamics of eight-year-old girls in school and all those kinds of things. And I'm a good dad, right? I, I know how to give you a straight line to figure this thing out. And uh, she was quickly like, Dad, I just wanted you to hear me. And I was like, I'm sorry. Like, I, heard, I was like, thank you for telling me that, Karis. Like, that is so helpful to me to hear that you just want me to hear you. You just want me to join you. Because ultimately, she knows I can't fix her friends. I mean, I think down deep inside, she knows that, right? And so she just wants me to hear her and to be present with her. And the same is true as your God wants to be with you and to hear you and to be in it. And guess what? I'm going to let you know a little secret. If you take your brief to God, who can handle it? God. God can handle your frustrations with him. Right? God can handle it because what he can do is begin to show you himself, show you his goodness, show you his purposes that are beyond what you, what you even understood or knew, and begin to trust him in those things. And so, friend, have you addressed God with your failed relationships? Have you addressed God with a disappointing career? Have you addressed God with firestorm destruction? Know that you don't have to treat your God with kid gloves. 
You don't have to treat him with kid gloves. He's a big boy. He can handle it. He endeavors to handle it. He wants to handle it. God ultimately just desires us to engage. That's, that's the longing of his heart, is that we would engage with him. Have you seen The Incredibles, right? Where Helen Pars, right? She's saying, Bob's doing his thing. He's off in his own little world. And all the thing, only thing that she wants from her husband is to engage. Bob, engage. That's what, Jesus, that's what God wants from his people. Engage. I want you. I want you present. I want you here. I want you to see me. I want you near me. I want you with me in relationship. That's what your God is wanting from you. Even if it means, even if it means bringing up some things that are hard for you to bring up before your God. Lamenting, though, is directed at God, but it's also particular and detailed in his experience of God, isn't it? It's not some vague, ambiguous, like, God, you weren't there kind of thing. It's like he is very articulate and particular about his experience of God. Think about your most meaningful relationships. They are not characterized by vague, ambiguous statements about your life together. I'd venture to say, otherwise you may not have a lot of relational intimacy. Because relational intimacy doesn't come with, by saying, you're rad. You're cool. Right? I like you. Right? Like, that doesn't create relational intimacy. Relational intimacy comes by saying, I love this when you've done that about this. It's putting yourself out there and saying, you know, in our marriage, right, intimacy is built when my wife tells me that, or when I tell my wife that I love that she joined me in my joy over another Seahawk victory over the 49ers, right? Like I'm putting myself out there a little bit. I'm saying, you know, that really, I really enjoyed that. That was really exciting. And so I'm, I'm communicating something. It's a bid for her to connect with me, isn't it? And if she receives that bid, what does that end up doing? It draws us closer, makes us more intimate, right? And now we, now we can trust each other. And that's the same thing with God is, is we, we put out there specifics about our experiences with God. And so this lament is full of particular and detailed descriptions of his experiences with God. Now, sometimes this is kind of hard to hear about God, isn't it? Like God, his affliction is one of abandonment. God has turned away, right, as God said he would because of the unfaithfulness of God's people. But, but God, you've abandoned me. You've turned away from me. You're nowhere near me. You're not here. You're, in fact, it feels like your hand is against me in the first three verses. Like you are against me. And he further describes that, verse 4 through 6, as he says, the severity of his abandonment is very clear, is that it's afflicting and af affecting his flesh, his skin, and his bones. It's like pervasive. It's everywhere. It's in all of his body, right? That's a description of all of him. And he's been besieged and enveloped with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He aligns himself with dead people more than alive people. His experience of God has led him to that, or that experience of him. Seven through nine is that his experience of God is, is that of a wall. God himself is causing his captivity. God is the reason he's experiencing this bondage, this enslavement. God himself is thwarting his prayers. Though I cry, though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayers. God, you're not hearing me. You don't hear me. 
Have you ever felt like God himself was preventing you from receiving what you thought was good? Like not just, not just preventing you, blocking you, but actually making your path crooked? He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Like God is in your way every way you go, and he's not making it easy. In fact, he's making it more difficult because of his presence. And it wasn't just preventative. God himself was on the attack. Look at verse 10. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He's like a lion and a bear ready to pounce, ready to attack me and where I'm at. Like a master archer aiming his, his arrow to pierce my heart. This is hard to hear about our God, the good shepherd, the loving one, the one who cares for us. Like, like this is, but this is the lamenter's experiences of his God as he's ex- incurring and experiencing the difficulty of God's punishment and, and God's discipline upon his people. And the pain isn't limited to attacks, but it progresses to humiliation and shame at the hands of others. It's 14 and 15 described. Then in verses 16 through 18, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. So verse 17, we we get a sense of his inner feelings. We get a sense of his inner person, his inner soul, what's going on in his heart. And his hope in God has eroded. It's been destroyed. His ability to believe and to hope in God is gone. It's hopelessness. So I say my endurance has perished, and so is my hope from the Lord. He no longer expects anything from God himself. That's, That's a difficult place to be. For the only one who can change and transform and do anything about the circumstances in our life, he himself was no longer expecting anything from him. Hopelessness had set in. And so here we have a full and honest expression of one man's experience of God. And it's not filled with rainbows and unicorns that are often associated with God and following him. But instead, more of pain and disappointment. And so what then does lamenting look like for us? It's this, is that first, it's feeling our sorrows. It's feeling, acknowledging, and understanding, like feeling the sorrows that we have. And second, it's expressing that sorrow to who? To God. Lamenting is expressing the sorrows that we incur in this life to God himself. And where might that lament lead? Because this is a super downer for a visiting pastor to come and preach. (laughs) It's hopelessness to hope. Look at verse 18. This is where we're left. Left us with hopelessness, but verse 19, he begins, So I say my endurance has perished, so is my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings. And so there's a turning. There's a turning in this space. There's a turning in his heart. There's a turning in his experience of God. It's like he's, perhaps he's laid out every, everything that he's got against God, he's put it on the table. He's all right, God, emptying his pockets. Here's this and here's that. And pulls out this gun and that weapon and this. And he's got it all on the table out there. It's all out there for everybody to see. He's like, I got nothing left. 
And in that moment, and in that space, when he says, I got nothing left, he begins to recognize, he begins to turn his heart, he begins to turn his soul, and he begins to see the only one who can transform, the only one who can change and affect his soul. He begins to see God for himself in that space. You see, before he has all these things, and that's the lens that he's seeing as God, right? I see God through this, I see God through this, through this disappointment, this and that, and all these expectations that were missed and failed, and I couldn't see him. And God's like, let me take it. Let me take it. Yeah, I got that. I got that pain. I got that disappointment. I got that job. I got that frustration. Yeah, I got that relationship. Yep, yep, I got that. I got that. Here, I got it all. I'm holding it. And here we see a man who's left everything on the table, and he sees his God. He sees his God and only his God. My soul continues remember, continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. So in remembering his distress, he turns to God, the only one he can turn to. He peers out from his pain, and he sees his God. And he remembers what is true of his God. He remembers his God, his love, his God's love is steadfast, it's faithful, it's never ending, it's never ceasing, it does not end. He remembers that his God's love is totally and completely, 100% reliable every single time. So his faithfulness has been on display since creation. His faithfulness has been on display in the flood. His faithfulness is put on display in the exodus. His faithfulness is put on display in the wandering of the wilderness. His faithfulness has been put on display in the idyllic kingdom. His faithfulness is even put on display when he enacts judgment and he brings Babylon to bring his people into exile because he said he would do it and he actually did it. So what your God says he will do, he will actually do. And that's what we see is that God is faithful 100% of the time, always. And his mercies, his compassion, his mercy, his compassion, his restoration over judgment, God never ti gets tired of not giving us what we deserve. God never gets tired of not giving us what we deserve because what is it that we deserve as sinners? shaking our puny little fists at a good, righteous, holy God. We don't deserve anything. We deserve destruction, damnation. All those difficult realities is that God loves to see his people breathe every single day, and that's mercy from God. And so every day we breathe, we are recipients of his mercy, and he loves to endlessly give that to us. It is who he is. And he ends, verse 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. So he peers out from the corner, lays all of his stuff on the table. And he says, do you see it? And he begins to turn and he begins to see his God. And he begins not to see the things of his God. He begins not to see the aspects of his God. He begins to see one thing and one thing alone. And that one thing that he begins to see is God. His hope is God alone and in him alone. Not the things of God, associated with God, next to God, kind of God, path of God, all those. None of the ofs of God. It's God. He gets God himself. 
God alone, that's his portion, that's his inheritance. When he remembers what is his, what is coming his way, he remembers that it is God and he gets God alone and only him. The portion of his life. So despite the feelings of abandonment, attacks, humiliation, and despair, he remembers the prize. The prize for you and for I through the gospel of Jesus Christ is God. He is the prize. God will not allow us to settle for any second-rate trinket prize. Though they may seem good, though they may seem next to God, though they may seem like they're from God, he won't let us settle for anything less than himself. So God alone is the hope he receives in Redemption Hill. Hear me this morning. Your hope of God has been secured. This is the good news. And it's been grounded in his willingness. His willingness to enter your pain. To join you in your grief. And become your hope in the midst of darkness. See, 2,000 years ago, God came. God came to be like you and like me, to live amongst the muck and the mire, to live amongst the pain and the difficulty, to live amongst the sin, to live amongst all the things that disappoint us, frustrate us, and leave us longing for something more. God's like, I will go. I sign myself up for that. I will join in. I will enter into all of that. I will experience that. I will encounter all of that on behalf of you. And so when you look at the cross, when you look at the gospel, when you look at the good news, you see a God who says, I know what you're going through. I know what it's like to not have my family understand me because I follow my father. I know what it's like to have disappointments in this life. I know what it's like to, to incur the pain and the difficulty of the physical realities of this world. God says, I sign up for that on your behalf. And so he came to ensure that you and I will never have to walk through this life alone. That we'll never have to wonder if God is for us. That we will never have to wonder if we will lose our portion in our inheritance. First Peter says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He's going to bring us to our God. And so that hope, that experience of this lamenter where he gets himself and he sees that he gets God himself, that is assured of you today, not because of you. Thank goodness. Thank goodness when I look at my own heart because the inclinations of my heart are up, down, all around. And I'm like a normal, boring, steady, eddy guy. But when I look inside there, it's crazy. And thank God, right? Thank God in his goodness and his generosity. He's like, I've got the gospel. I've got Jesus. I've got somebody who can do it on your behalf. And you get all of that. And as a result of getting him, you know what you actually get? You get me. You get God. And that's hope. That's an enduring hope that lasts from generation to generation that pushes you through the difficulty of moving from one state to another state to another state to another state, right? All over the place. He is still with us, leading us. And he wants to be with you, leading you, directing you, guiding you to each and every step that he has for you. And so Jesus is your security this morning that you get God.
And Christ is your assurance that you will never have to lament without hope. You can lament, but you never have to lament without the promise of hope on the other side. Because biblical lament leads us to God, and biblical lament is always couched in the reality of the resurrection. It's ours. It's what we have. And so where are you today? As we close, are you in sorrow? Are you in pain? Are you in a season of can't seeing through the fog and the haze? Can I plead with you to take your pain to the one who can respond and who can change it? And don't edit your words before your God. Don't edit them. He can handle them. Bring it to him. Let him know how you feel. Let him know. He wants all of you. He wants you to trust him with your anger, with your fear, with your sadness, with your disappointments, with your feelings of overwhelmed, all of those things. He wants to trust you with those. And so for those in sorrow this morning, I can't tell you why. Or how long that you will remain in the feeling of darkness. There are no answers for that. But I can leave you with this quote. That the path of lament need not end in despair. Because despair results when we lament without hope. And in Christ we lament, we lament with the sure reality of the resurrection in view. And so that is what is true. That is what is coming. I know not when that resurrection takes place in your life in this experience, but there is a certainty and there is an assurance on the next life. And maybe you're in a season of renewed hope. Give thanks. Like, honestly, like, it's Thanksgiving. Like, give thanks. That's good. Like, thank you, God, for being present. Thank you, God, for showing me yourself. Thank you, God, for your presence. Thank you that I can experience you in this life. But wherever you're at today, may he give you the gift of himself more fully this Thanksgiving, we pray. Let's pray. God, you're good. You're faithful. You've shown yourself to be faithful time and time and time and time again, God. You've been good to your people. You've showed us the way when we did not know there was a way, you've shown us the beauty and the glory and the splendor of your son and the hope that we have as a result of trusting, following, and believing in him, God. And so I, I pray that as our hearts may be downcast, as we may be wondering what you're up to, as may we be enduring some of the difficulties of this life, that you would lift our gaze. Help us to be out and up towards you. Help us to be out and up and see the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to see his goodness. Help us to see his love and his tenderness and his care and his generosity toward us, his children. God, we pray and we plead that you would give us a grander vision of your son. May he lead us and guide us to have hope in the midst of despair. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.